Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We continue walking through this wonderful, rich part of God's Word, a message today I'm calling Freedom and Focus. As believers in Christ, we have a message and we have a mandate. We have a mandate to share the message of the gospel that we've been singing about today. So today from 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to be reminded of that calling and we'll be reminded that every part of our lives need to be in alignment with the message that we're sharing. Paul here has modeled that for us as we've come through the first eight chapters. Paul is very concerned about his life to make sure there's nothing in his life that would be a turnoff to people hearing and responding to the gospel. There's going to be a word for us in that today. When we crossed into chapter eight, Paul took up this theme of avoiding being a stumbling block. You remember that last time we came upon that interesting topic of whether these first century Corinthians in the Roman Empire, could they eat meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols? Not a question you and I face in our culture, but it was an everyday question there. And Paul ended that discussion with chapter 8, verse 13. He said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's a profound statement. That's profound love right there. I'm willing to give it up. Now, we know that Paul did not become a vegetarian. We're going to come to chapter 10 in a couple of weeks, and we'll see those occasions when he would eat meat, when he would not eat meat. But he's just making the statement, if something like eating meat would cause another person to not want to follow Christ or to cause somebody to fall away from following Christ, I'd be willing to even give that up. So Paul's point is this. I care about people more than food. I care about people more than my own rights and my own freedoms. That's what we're seeing in his life. So he's teaching that to the Corinthians, but he's also going to tell us now how he models that in his own life in other matters. So first thing I want you to notice with me is this. Paul defends here his gospel calling. As we move into chapter nine, we're going to see Paul first defending his gospel calling. That's verses one and two. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul brings up this topic of him being an apostle again because there were some in the church in Corinth who were challenging Paul's authority, thinking that, Paul, you're not a legitimate apostle. So let's talk about that. First of all, let's remind ourselves, what is an apostle? That word is used in the New Testament in two ways, in a functional way and also in a positional way. And both of these ways were true of Paul. He was functionally an apostle and he had the position of apostle. So functionally, we mean this. That word literally means a sent out one, somebody who goes out with the gospel to share it. So in a sense, we could call any modern day missionary we could call them apostles because they're sent out with the gospel. Now, we're not going to call them apostles because typically that would be misunderstood as the positional sense of the word. So Paul also was in the office, the position, the role of apostle. An apostle then in that sense was one who had been with Christ and carried the special authority in the churches. And Paul knew this was under question there in Corinth. And so right out of the gate, when we started 1 Corinthians, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
Paul had met Jesus on the Damascus road. You remember his testimony? Going to persecute Christians. Jesus mercifully intercepted him, transformed him, his life on that occasion, saved him in that one encounter on the road, and commissioned him as one of his apostles on that very day. And he references that here in chapter 9, verse 1, where he says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He's saying, I have seen him. Paul's claiming that was more than just a vision. That was an actual encounter with the risen, ascended Christ. Jesus did show up for him there on the Damascus road. He had seen Jesus. And he's going to reference this again when we get closer to the end of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he's going to say this. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So you and I coming in this morning, we had no doubts about Paul being an apostle. The word of God testifies that. We had no reason to doubt that. But when Paul's writing this, he's dealing with a troubled church and they're doubting it. And why would they be doubting that? Well, there were some false teachers likely that had come in and they had cast Paul into doubt. They had whatever agenda they had. And so they would cast doubt on Paul's authority in the church. Other reasons why these Corinthians might not have easily seen Paul as apostle. We know this from the writings here that Paul was not looked at favorably by them. In other words, Paul was not impressive to them physically. So he, we know from the scriptures, he did not have an impressive physical appearance. He also likely was not an eloquent speaker compared to others who came through Corinth. So Apollos notably was an eloquent man and people would see that. So by comparison, Paul might not have looked that impressive. Paul also, we know by the way he writes, he assumed the posture of a servant of God, very humble. And maybe that didn't fit what some thought an apostle ought to act like. But in this context here, Paul says one of the reasons that they're doubting him being an apostle is because how he handled his finances. And as we get into how Paul handled his finances, you and I are going to find this very admirable. We think that ought to be proof that he is one, but it just blew their minds how Paul handled money there. So here's what Paul did. So Paul was different than the other traveling teachers who would come through. Sometimes even pagan teachers would move from city to city there in the first century Roman Empire. And it was customary for the people receiving that teaching to pay the teacher. And if he was a really gifted teacher, he could do quite well financially. And so Paul, though, was not going to receive any money from the Corinthian church, though he was teaching there. He spent about a year and a half there planting that church and teaching. Wouldn't take money. And to the minds of the Corinthians, like that's odd. Why won't you take support from us like any other teacher coming through town? And so they felt like, listen, if Paul were a real apostle, he would know that he's entitled to our support. So Paul here gives a defense of his apostleship. He says, I've seen the Lord. That's point one. He says, I've carried out my mission to take the gospel where it's not been known. I've come to Corinth with it. In fact, he's saying to the Corinthians, Corinthians, you are the best proof that I am an apostle. Again, verse one, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And now he makes it personal to them. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Corinthians, the fact that you are believers is proof that I'm an apostle. I was sent with the gospel to you. The fact that there's a church there that I can write to with all the troubles you have, you're proof that I'm an apostle. Listen, this problem was not resolved with 1 Corinthians. 
He has to write to them again in 2 Corinthians and brings it up again. Listen to this. Same idea, 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of commendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul tells them, I shouldn't need letters of recommendation from others to show that I'm an apostle. Corinthians, you should be writing the letters. I love it. You are the letter that we are legitimately, and I am a legitimately apostle. So their conversion, the existence of a church, bolsters the fact that indeed Paul, a legitimate apostle of the Lord. So he, he defends his gospel calling, but now see this, Paul affirms his gospel freedoms. He affirms his gospel freedoms. Now he's going to give us a lengthy passage here talking about the rights he has as a minister of the gospel on his way to say, and I'm not going to use any of those rights. But I want you to see the passion with which he writes these things as the Spirit guides him. Let's pick up now in verse 3. It's a lengthy passage, so follow along in your Bible or listen very carefully. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does it not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Listen, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Here are the freedoms, the rights, as he calls them, that Paul emphatically lists here. First, he says he has the right to eat and drink. And we think what he's referring to there is that what he means by that is when I'm there among you in Corinth, I would have the right as a minister of the gospel to have you supply food and drink for me. But Paul's making the point, and I never took up that right that was legitimately mine. Another right, another freedom that Paul mentions here is the, the freedom to have a believing wife. And the idea would be to have a wife and to travel with her and to be supported by the churches when he traveled with her. We know Paul did not take up that right that he felt he had, that freedom in Christ, because Paul preferred to be single. Remember, he regarded it as a gift of singleness, that he might give his undivided devotion to the Lord. And so he was not taking up that right. But then this one, verse 6, the idea of financial support. So really, all of these relate to financial support, to be fed uh, by others, to carry a believing wife along who would be supplied by others, or just financial support in general here. So before he explains why he's not going to take their support, he really, with intensity, teaches how legitimate it would be to receive their support. So I love this. He's going to make the case for this because he doesn't want to discredit others. So men like Apollos 
likely came through Corinth and legitimately received support from the Corinthians while he ministered among them. Nothing wrong with that. Cephas, if he came through, Peter, if he ever came through, then he would have received that support. He's not disparaging those who do what is typical to receive that type of support. But he's going to make the case here after this why he's not going to take it. But let's notice the case for supporting those in gospel ministry. Verse 7, did you notice here, he gives a soldier analogy. Like, why would you send somebody off to battle and not pay that one in battle? As we think about our own military, there are people in the reserves. And as I understand it, they get some basic, not enough support just to be in the reserves. But then when they go into active duty, still not enough for, for what they do for us, but they are more fully supported when they're in active duty defending the nation. We say that, that's, that seems right. We would not want our soldiers in the middle of a war trying to get a side job to supply for their needs. Verse 7, he gives another one in quick succession, this analogy about someone working in a vineyard. That person working in a vineyard would expect to partake of some of the fruit. Verse 7 also, he quickly gives this one, that those who tend to a flock would expect to enjoy some of the milk. Then he appeals to Old Testament scripture, that famous passage about not muzzling an ox when it treads on the grain. And he makes the point, yeah, God cares about animals, but it's not really about animals. This is talking about those serving the Lord in the Old Covenant, that they were paid through that. So then after the analogies and this appeal to scripture, verses 11 and 14 make the point very clearly. Let's see those again. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Then verse 14, very clear. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's a very helpful, practical teaching. Paul's on his way to make another point, but let's just pause here for application. First of all, this is a case for really supporting those in full-time, we'd even say bivocational ministry and missions. This is why we sacrificially give to support missionaries and their families all around the world. So when we send people out here in obedience to the Great Commission, we're not telling them, look, we'll pray for you, but we're not going to help you. You go get a job there in the Middle East and let us know how it goes. Now, some people do that type of missions, and that's fine. Sometimes that's the only way you can get access, somebody to go to a certain place and get a job and work nine to five or, or even more. It is not glamorous. It's, it's admirable, but it's not glamorous because a lot of energy expended in the workplace and then whatever time left over to do to whatever ministry. So, so we gladly, taking to heart passages like this, want to be supportive of those going out to do the Great Commission all over the world. This is why we also support those in North American church planting. People like Dale Johnson out in California or Adam here locally, we want to support them until their church can grow to be self-supporting. We want to be funding that. And a passage like this tells us why that is very normal. This is why churches like ours support pastors and other staff members. And here, how it works, we have a personnel committee that looks at the pastors and a church our size and they use studies from Lifeway and others to say, what's an appropriate salary here? And so they, the personnel committee every year takes a look at that on their own. Pastors aren't involved in that. Then that goes to the finance team. The finance team is tasked with, well, what can we afford to do? And what are the other needs we have to do as a ministry? And then a recommendation coming from them to the church family every year where we vote on that. So very, very appropriate. First Corinthians 9 lets us know that is a biblical process. But notice this. Paul makes this strong biblical case for the right of financial support for those in ministry and missions like himself. But then he does what's unexpected. And it's very interesting. He says, there is a right, and we're not going to take up that right. 
I'm not going to do it. Verse 12 again, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, this is so strong. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So notice this. He's, he's agreeing with the Corinthians first. Intensely so. You should be supporting ministers of the gospel. He's just laying out soldiers, people working in the vineyards. You should do it. And they're probably saying, that's what we've been telling you, Paul. We've been telling you, you should be taking the money we're giving. And he says, I'd rather die than to take it. And Paul, what are you doing there? It reminded me of a time years ago when Joy and I were living overseas. We were in Central Asia and we went out to eat one night to the nicest-ish restaurant in town. There was a hotel there in the town and they had a restaurant. It looked kind of nice. And so we went there and two things happened. First, two of them funny. And the second one relates to Paul here. But the first thing funny that happened, we sat down at this restaurant. They brought us out menus and uh, we started looking at what we would like to have. And everything we pointed to, he would point to something else, the server. So we think, I, I think we'd like this. And he, he, he liked to weigh that off. He'd point to something. After about four or five things that we thought we wanted to eat, he kept pointing this one thing. We realized, oh, that's all they have to serve tonight. There's nothing. Why did you give us a menu when you just have the one item? But here's the one that relates to this message. So then we get our food. And this man then in English says, would you like ketchup? Well, I hadn't even thought about ketchup. If he hadn't mentioned it, I wouldn't have missed it. But when he mentioned ketchup, I thought, well, yes, we'd like ketchup. He said, we don't have ketchup. <laughs> why, did you, why did you bring that up? And so this is what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, you should pay those in ministry. It's biblical. Think of the Old Testament and all that. But I won't take it from you. I'm not going to take it. And so why was Paul not taking it here? Look, it appears to be Paul's practice. In fact, we see this through the New Testament. Whenever he was in a particular city, he would not take money from them. So when he's planning a church, from them taking no money. So how is he going to support himself? Well, he was a leather worker. He was a literal tent maker. And so he would work with his hands to supply his own needs. But that wouldn't cover at all. And so he would accept financial support from other churches in other locations. So, so I won't take it from you, Corinthians, but I've got it coming in from other, other churches outside. But every city he went in, it appears that he wouldn't take it locally, but he would have support from outside. Here's an example. By the way, here's another issue that was not put to rest by 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he's having a battle, the same battle. But look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Paul says to these Corinthians again, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. No, God knows that I do. So rather than admiring Paul, they said, this is just an acknowledgement in his own heart. He knows he doesn't have a legitimate claim to these offerings because if he were a real apostle, he would take it. One scholar put it this way, Paul's refusal to exercise this right is not a confession of ineligibility. Paul was eligible. He makes that case. But for his purposes, I don't want to take it. I don't want to in any way 
cause a hindrance. I think Paul was concerned that people might think of his motives in question. Like some of these pagan traveling teachers coming through who sometimes did enrich themselves more than just basic support, Paul thought, I don't want any question when I plant churches, so I'll take outside support, work with my hands, but I don't want to be a barrier here. So as we think about this on our way to other points, but let's consider some application here as well. So you and I want to avoid all extremes when it comes to finances in ministry. So on the one hand, we want to avoid the extreme of thinking that it's unspiritual for those in ministry to even need money. Somebody might become so spiritually minded, well, God, God will just take care of them. He'll just miraculously give them money. I don't think that we need to worry about that. They work for God, God will give that to them. But you think about just, that's not realistic, that in ministry, most ministers, or many of them at least, have wives and children, and they need food and clothing and shelter. And in our culture, you need transportation and medical insurance and education for kids. And then you start thinking about when I'm no longer able to do ministry, what am I going to do next? And so you're planning for the future. And so we would say, well, that's not unspiritual to think about such things. So we don't want to go to an extreme there, but also we don't want to go to the other extreme where those in ministry start living lavishly on the sacrificial gifts of God's people. And we've seen many gross examples of that in our culture, but also in other cultures around the world where there are pastors very obviously driven by greed. I'll, I'll give a couple of names. So maybe you know the name Benny Hinn and Benny Hinn. I don't, I don't see him on TV. I guess I don't have those channels. I used to have, be a, hard to avoid the guy. And then now I have to go hunt for him. Is he still out there? And he's still out there. And uh, one of the prosperity preachers preaching that if you give his ministry money, uh, then you're going to be rich and taken care of and never get sick and all those kinds of things. The prosperity gospel. Well, um, his nephew was a part of his ministry until a number of years ago. His nephew came under conviction of the error of the prosperity gospel, became a Bible teaching pastor, very faithful. And he talks about those years traveling with his uncle before he repented and got out of that ministry. He says, among other things, that they would sometimes stay in hotels that were $25,000 a night. Can you imagine? Just lavish, traveling around private jets, living like rock stars. And, and so we certainly would not apply 1 Corinthians 9 to something like that. They tell us that Kenneth Copeland has a net worth of $760 million dollars and lives in a multi-million dollar mansion there in Texas. And we say that that would be an unbiblical extreme use of First Corinthians 9. We want to avoid that. In other ways, we just think about ministry and finances. I think we want to make sure that we would not look down on those who work bivocationally in ministry. Somehow are they less? So you might see a brother serving as a pastor in some small church and he, his church is not big enough to supply what he would need for his family. And so he works a side job. We would not look down on them. We would say that is very admirable. I mean, we think about Paul did that, right? He's, he's working and he's also uh, receiving support from these other churches. In 2019, Lifeway tells us that 26% of pastors in America are bivocational. And that was before the pandemic. I think post-pandemic with the economic trouble on a lot of churches across the country, that number is probably climbing already climbed a lot, and we're expecting it'll go more. The average church in the country is, is smaller than we probably think it is. And so we would say that's admirable, where a church can't provide fully for a pastor, maybe like they would want to. This brother, if he has marketable skills outside of ministry, it could be a win-win for him. He might be able to take care of his family better than the church could anyway, and then he's kind of freed up from the church in some ways, but he can serve them, and, and the church wins like that. So we, we just want to have admiration for those brothers, but it's not glamorous. 
Sometimes you read articles just touting like, that's the way it ought to be. But the brothers in there are going, look, I'm, I'm in this ministry this way, bivocationally, often by necessity. This is rigorous. This is draining. I'm trying to do both things. It's bivocational. It doesn't make it part-time. So, so we're not holding it up as a model, but we're just saying it is admirable. When I think about bivocational ministers, I think about a man I knew years ago by the name of Johnny. And so years ago, uh, while in seminary, for, for, I don't know, two, three, four months, I was not the interim pastor at a church, but I was an interim preacher in a church outside of Memphis. And they were very kind to us, just going there together. And, um, and I remember when Joy and I make those weekend trips to, for me to preach in this church, uh, one of the times we, we went into the home of Johnny. I'm not using his last name, but uh, Johnny uh, went into his home, uh, and he was the bivocational music director in this little church. And he was noteworthy to me and to join me, both of us, for the same reasons. He, he was a very joyful Christian. One, at that time in my life, one of the most joyful Christians I had met. Just a real radiant joy for Jesus. But it was very apparent as we were in his home that he struggled terribly financially. I mean, you could just tell it by the life he was living. This was a tough, kind of deprived life as a bivocational music director in this church. He wasn't looking to bring this up. I don't know how we got on the topic, but, but as I were just talking, he talked about how when he, when he has teeth problems, he can't afford to go to the dentist. And uh, he told me this on, on two occasions, he pulled his own teeth because he could not, this is not in some remote country. This is in Tennessee. And uh, I was just blown away because here's this man, one of the most joyful Christians I'd met up to that point in my life, struggling so much. In his 40s and 50s, I was in my 20s at the time, he's 40 or 50, he's been in ministry for years, bivocational, and even trying to put it all together, can't afford to go to the dentist. So I said, Johnny, how did you pull your own teeth? He said, well, I got pliers out of my toolbox. And he just described what it was like to pull teeth, molars, out of his head. And then on another occasion, same thing. And so I've always had a great admiration for this man. Uh, what an example to me when you don't have everything maybe you wanted to have or somebody else has. And yet this man, great joy, just making the point. I and mean, guys like that are heroic to us. But then we come to Paul's point here. Paul now models gospel passion and focus. All this interesting path we've taken to get to this point. He's dealing with real circumstances there with these Corinthians, all these rights and freedoms, but I'm not taking them. Because I have this gospel passion and focus. That takes us, that takes us to verse 16. For I if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul, because he was saved by Christ on that Damascus road and commissioned with the gospel that day, he understood I, he, he had a, an unending gospel responsibility. He must share the gospel here. So he's saying here, when I preach the gospel, I have no ground for boasting. I'm not worthy of a pat on the back for doing what God clearly commanded me to do. He says here, did you notice? It's a necessity. He also used that word that this is a stewardship. The gospel has come to me. It's been entrusted to me. And what am I supposed to do with it? I must give it away. I must proclaim the gospel. And then he even uses the word reward here. What's his reward? 
It's not that he's seeking anything from any human. The real reward is in preaching the gospel and knowing that he was giving it out free of charge. But notice what he says here. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm worthy of condemnation. If have, after having received this calling from God to not do it, woe is me if I don't carry out this stewardship. I'm not seeking any human reward, he's saying. God called me to do it. I'm just wanting to do and be faithful. Notice here, Paul's not trying to compare himself to other people. I should be getting more. That guy gets more. None of that. I must proclaim the gospel. And now let's apply this to ourselves. Are you clear on your responsibility to proclaim the gospel? Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so a believer, do you see sharing the gospel as an awesome privilege and an awesome responsibility? It's both. Here we are in the new covenant. We've been recipients of this gospel. We have that same responsibility. We must be seeking to share this gospel with others. It's a great privilege to be an ambassador for Christ, but it's a great responsibility. And then here's a question. Are there obstacles or stumbling blocks in your life keeping you from sharing the gospel and keeping others from responding to the gospel. Again, verse 12, Paul said, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So let's consider together in the moments that remain, what are some of those potential obstacles that could be in our lives that would keep us from sharing and keep others from responding to the Lord's gospel? One of those obstacles is this, it's silence. It's silence. If a believer never seeks to share the gospel, that is a major obstacle to people hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel if we're not talking about Jesus. And why would we be silent about the gospel? If you boil it down, it's because we're embarrassed about Jesus, that we're ashamed of Jesus. We have to remind ourselves what Paul reminded himself in Romans 1:16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Some time ago, I was about to speak somewhere and people were gathered and, and I knew a number of them would not be believers in the room. And, and I knew I was going to be sharing the gospel in the midst of other things. And, and in my head, I started to have this little conversation in there. I, I bet some of these people don't want to hear the gospel. I bet some of these people are going to think this is narrow and they're going to be offended by the gospel. And so I had a bit of timidity kind of working up in my own heart. And I preached Romans 1.16 to myself, not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Listen, let's not be ashamed of our Savior. Let's speak boldly of him. Yes, using tact at the right times and right places, but it should be this that we should want to do. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you sought to have a gospel conversation with somebody else? I don't mean when's the last time you got all the way through it. I'm not asking when somebody got saved through, through your testimony. I'm just asking when was the last time you were in a conversation with somebody and a gospel concern welled up in you, realized, you realized they don't know Christ. I, I need to share Christ with them. When's the last time you, you, you had that? And though you might've been a bit nervous about it, you, you then thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something here. I'm gonna try to 
turn this conversation to Jesus? When was the last time that happened? Listen, silence is a major obstacle to other people coming to hear the gospel and coming to trust in Christ. Here's another obstacle, distraction. Here we're looking at Paul and he was saying, everything in my life needs to line up in the sharing of the gospel. Nothing can be in my life that would be a hindrance to this gospel, getting to people. And so he's lined everything up. But you and I can say, I don't have that focus. I'm distracted by a lot of other things. Passion, not passionate about evangelism. Not passionate about that. I'm passionate about sports. It's, it's college football season. How can you not? I'm passionate about gardening or travel, or good food, coffee. We can say, I'm, I'm passionate about a lot of stuff. Just, just not evangelism. Just not missions. Just not disciple making. Listen, that distraction is a barrier in your life to other people hearing and responding to the gospel. Here's another one. This is an ugly one. Hypocrisy. If you've been tolerating sin in your life, you're sinning with unbelievers around you. How are you ever going to turn a conversation to Jesus when you've been sinning with these people? You have no gospel credibility. Your first thing you have to say to them is, you know, I'm sorry to you. I've been a, I'm a believer, but I've been not living like it. And I'm returning to Jesus and I want you to come with me. I know I have no credibility, but I, I want to touch, you know, I'm sorry for how I've been living a fake Christian life. The Lord has convicted me of that. I'm sorry. And I, I want to tell you about Jesus. Would, would you come with that? That's how you're going to have to have the gospel conversation. I hope you have that conversation this week if that fits your situation. But maybe it's not even sin. It doesn't have to be an overt sin. You think, well, I'm not running around and, and drinking and, and cheating on my wife. What do you mean? You, you could have a hindrance in your life, a barrier, a stumbling block, just with a bad attitude. If you're that person at work that nobody likes to be around, they don't know which version of you they're going to get day to day. You're grouchy some days and pleasant some days, and they don't know what they're getting. That's a barrier to the gospel. I don't, I don't know if I want your Jesus. <laughs> if I can't see a change in your life, there's no fruit of the Spirit in you. So today, would you join me? Reorient yourself to the gospel. Embrace these two statements that Paul mentioned here. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Would you, would you take that on personally? Would you be able to say that? Woe to me if I don't preach, if I don't share this gospel with others. And would you take on the other one Paul mentioned? But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So first of all, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you hear us talking about how we need to share this with others. Can I tell you today, you need to respond to the gospel that God loved you. Even in your sinfulness, even in your rebellion, God loved you. Jesus left heaven to come and rescue you from your sin, to cleanse you of all your sins. But Jesus died on a cross for you. Isn't that amazing? And he was raised from the dead. Isn't that amazing? And the promise of scripture, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But listen, if you don't call on the name of the Lord, you're rejecting rescue and that won't go well for you. Woe is you if you reject the gospel and woe is us if we don't share the gospel. So today, first, if you need to trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus today. Ask Jesus to be your savior. And then Christian, share the gospel. Share the gospel with your family and friends. You can do it by inviting people to church. They, How would I start the conversation? You can start the conversation. Hey, would you like to come to church with me? And then no matter what they say, you might have an opportunity to share your testimony. They might say, I don't really do church. And you can tell your story. You know, I didn't either one time. But here's what Jesus did in my life. Come on with me. Check it out. Come with me. You can be very natural. Invite somebody and see what kind of spiritual conversation comes there. And then this, would you consider a call to ministry and to missions? God doesn't call everybody to be pastors or church planners or youth ministers. God doesn't call everybody to be a missionary. But I think this is a perfect day for us to say, Lord, I'm open. Whatever you want me to do, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel here or wherever you call me to do it. And so I'm just making myself available should you call me. 
And the good news is, if God begins to give you some interest there, you think, I, I, maybe you have a church family who would love to help you discern that, walk with you, and equip you for that. You don't just jump out and do it. We would help you equip for that. But here's another practical thing I want every church member to do this week. This week, at some point, I hope that you'll go to imb.org, International Mission Board. If you'll go to imb.org, everybody in church, I want you to do it sometime this week. And it's a big website. Say, so what, what is a big website? I want you to click on one tab. It says Go. It's the go tab. Now, don't worry. If you click go, the IMB is not going to come get you and stick you on a plane to India. It's not going to happen. It's a slower process than that. But I, I want you to go because I think you'll be very inspired. You're going to see about all kinds of opportunities to go. You're going to see some six-week opportunities to go for some students to go for six weeks to go serve in some parts, to join a missionary team for about six weeks somewhere. They're not going to tell you all the opportunities. So many of them are in places where we don't acknowledge we have missionaries. And so there'll be a lot of needs. There are hundreds more that aren't visible. But just among the ones that are visible, you're going to be inspired. There are some semester-long opportunities. But then for adults, there are things for two years you could go. And then for longer than that, apprentice or career-type really uh, without an end, end date at the end of it, you could go serve long-term and you're just going to be inspired. And as you're, as you're seeing these, you, you might see that, you know, God is calling me to one of these. I know this, we have members of our church who are serving among the nations. They need teammates. And where do missionary teammates come from? They come from churches like ours. I, think, I can't think of a better church for them to come out of than this church. And so we need to be asking, God, are you calling me? He's not going to call everybody. The ones of us who are not called to go right now, we're funding, we're praying, we're encouraging. But oh, wouldn't it be wonderful as many of our members, as all of us go to imb.org this week and we click on go and we just start looking at needs. We're going to pray more informed and God, I would pray, will call some to go. And they'll begin a process of equipping and the church will come alongside you for that. But would you do that this week? Take to heart with me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do take these things to heart. We're inspired by what we see here in 1 Corinthians 9. Lord, you work these truths now deep into us. Help us to be unable to shake these truths. May our lives more reflect these truths this week. Help us to be zealous, courageous in sharing the good news with people all around us who need to hear it. Lord, I pray even when we invite people to church, you'll put us in relationships and conversations where people are willing to begin a spiritual conversation even through that. And then, Lord, do search our hearts. Show us any hypocrisy in us, any disobedience in us, any other hindrances in us that would be really a deterrent to others hearing and responding to your gospel. Lord, we forsake all the things sinful in us that you show us. We just want to walk with you in faithfulness and joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.